Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. David Linden will join us to discuss Think Tank. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, our brains are everything that we are, but what is it about brain function that uh, you'd most like to know? Well, that's the question asked in the new book, Think Tank. 40 neuroscientists explore the biological roots of human experience. The editor is Dr. David Linden. Dr. Linden is a professor of neuroscience at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he joins us today to talk about this fascinating book. And Dr. Linden, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm curious, uh, what got you to thinking of uh, getting all these neuroscientists together to explore the various roots of human behavior? Well, it really started in the bar. For years, I've been asking my neuroscientist colleagues after after plying them with uh, spirits or cannabis or, or whatever, what is it that you would most like to explain to a general audience about brain function? And I've been pleased because when I asked this question, people didn't lapse into the minutia of their latest experiments, they would, they would sit up a little straighter and open their eyes a little wider and give some very thoughtful and often quirky and counterintuitive answers. And a lot of times the things that people wanted to uh, explain weren't necessarily their own area of specialization, but some aspect of brain function that had just always fascinated them. So I thought it would be fun to to get some neuroscientists together and to uh, uh, and to give them the chance to to do this in short four or five page long essays written for a general audience. Was it difficult? They're really trying to explain it for for a general audience. Well, you know, it varied because I have forty different authors, and for some people, you know, had already written for a general audience and were pretty adept at it. Some hadn't, but were pretty good at it. Others needed a little bit of help and hand-holding, and a few people turned me down. But as it is with, with any group of busy scientists, it's a bit like herding cats to get everyone to do it and turn it in and get it done and deal with the editors and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But in the end, uh, you know, it's a labor of love, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with, with what came out. It runs the gamut of everything you can think of regarding the brain, everything from the development of the brain to how the brain processes uh, sensory information to uh, sort of more complex behaviors. Was it by chance or by choice that uh, these different topics arose? Well, obviously, I had people's specializations in mind when I did the interviews. I didn't just pick people I liked, although I only picked people I liked. But among those, I did choose people to try to cover the bases. I didn't want everyone writing about vision, for example, or everyone writing about sleep. Things happened. It, didn't, it wasn't my intention to make a neuroscience textbook in miniature, but I did want to cover a broad range of topics. Also, I wanted to choose topics that I thought people would care about, and not every topic is equally interesting to the general public. So I thought things like 
empathy and human sexual orientation and happiness and development of the brain in childhood were all pretty engaging topics. But you know, sometimes people threw me a curve. So for example, I invited Scott Sternson, who's a world expert on the regulation of appetite in the brain, to write a chapter. And uh, he didn't want to write about appetite. He wanted to uh, write about free will. And so I said, well, terrific. Let's do that then. And is there anything that surprised you, uh, not just necessarily the topics that came out, but the, the things that you didn't necessarily know about the brain or the areas that we still don't quite have a hold on? Well, I think there are lots of things that came out. And, you know, I think of myself, I am a professional brain researcher, and uh, I've been in the field a long time, but there were, I learned all sorts of things that I didn't know about. And I think it was also interesting that in some cases, I had authors who came to completely different conclusions about fundamental problems. So, for example, the book ends with two essays, one of them by uh, Professor Michael Mock from the University of Texas, saying that there's nothing that is uh, preventing us from eventually building machines that think. And there's another essay by Miguel Nicolelis from Duke saying, the human brain cannot be simulated by any Turing machine. And he believes that the brain uses a combination of linear and nonlinear functions that renders uh, brain processing fundamentally non-computable. And so, you know, here are two eminent scientists looking at the same problem and coming to completely opposite conclusions. And to me, that's wonderful because it shows how much in the brain is not settled science, that we're very much in our infancy in understanding many of the most fundamental aspects of uh, how the brain works and forms our human experience. Do you, do you fall one way or the other on that issue? You know, I would have to say I, f- I fall with Dr. Mock. I don't see that there is any principle that prevents us from eventually building machines that think. That said, I don't think we're on the verge of this either. I don't think that the Internet is already sentient, for example, which is something that has been uh, proposed by a few people. Not if you see what's on the Internet. I, I... <laughs> There's a famous essay uh, that said, if the Internet were already sentient, how would we know? Which I thought was a provocative thing to say, but I think the answer is, it's not sentient. So, so I, I see the book starts off with a little bit of a primer. I mean, do, do people need to come at this with at least some level of understanding of the brain, or, or do you bring them up to speed here? Well, you know, my goal is that you don't need any prior understanding of the brain at all, or even biology or psychology or anything. You should be able to just, anyone should be able to, crack open this book and have a whack at it. You know, not all the, these chapters were written by different people. So they're not all written at precisely the same level of accessibility. Some are a little uh, more technically challenging than others. But the goal was that any reasonably motivated person could understand any of the essays. But you're right that I wrote a little primer to try to get people up to speed. So I think if people have ever had a course in neuroscience or psychology, they probably heard most of what's in the primer. But that's there for those uh, who'd like it to, you know, sort of, you know, say neuroscience 101 in, in eight pages. If people want to sort of get a, get a hold on, do you think they should sort of just jump to the topics that are of interest to them? Again, should they, should they go through it sequentially, you think? Well, you know, I think, you know, everyone's got their own approach to this. The book is organized into themes, starting with the developing and changing brain and moving on to molecular signaling and then anticipating, sensing, and moving, relating. So it's getting sort of more complex, more high level as it moves on with deciding at the end. That said, 
I think it would be perfectly reasonable to just dip in and out of the thing. A lot of my friends who have been reading the book say what they like to do is in the evening, they'll just sort of randomly, they'll open it up, flip around and, and pick an essay that's interesting to them and maybe read one or two a night. They're real short, four or five pages. So it, it's easy to have a, like, a, like a, a tasty snack. And I don't think it's imperative that it be read from the beginning to the end or read in any particular order. Uh, sort of gravitate more towards the the ones that are towards the end. It seems, seems like you sort of cover uh, topics which of interest to a lot of people. For example, a chapter on, on sexual orientation and brain and uh, how we sort of relate to others. Well, so to take sexual orientation as an example, and that's a chapter that I wrote myself, we know, for example, uh, by studies of identical and fraternal twins that have been raised together and apart, we can estimate the genetic contribution to sexual orientation. And we know that in men, about 40% of the variance in sexual orientation can be accounted for by genetics. And in women, about 20, 25% can. So that's useful to know. Genetics plays a role, but it's far from the entire story. You can have two identical twins, for example, where one is gay and the other is straight. So that's useful. That said, could I give you a, a list of genes that, that uh, contribute to this partial variation in sexual orientation? No. We don't have that list in hand. We have a few candidates, and that's all. And so in that sense, it's early days. But I think it's also worthwhile to say that this is really the, the truth about a lot of traits and not just complicated behavioral traits like childhood, like shyness or, or sexual orientation or risk-taking, but even straightforward physical traits like height. It turns out that, that there are at least 300 genes that contribute to height, each counting for just a tiny bit of variation. But when you add them all up, 80% of the variation in height is genetically determined. So in the one way, you could say, well, we, we know a lot about this. But in another way, we know very little about this because so many of the details are still unclear. Likewise, we know that when hormones like testosterone and estrogen are perturbed early in development and fetal life and early postnatal life, that these have affects gender typical behavior and on um, sexual orientation, but I can't tell you that, oh, well, you know, if you're a female, but you have unusually high testosterone in utero, this is going to affect your brain in this way, which will make you more likely to be attracted to women when you're an adult. They're the most important middle pieces of that are, are almost entirely missing from our understanding. Sometimes you have to even know what the questions are. And, you know, right now, a catalog of all the neurons in the brain and when they express, say, receptors for testosterone at different times in life would be extraordinarily useful to begin to understand how testosterone affects a brain development. But we don't even have that list yet. So our understanding of, of that overall process is in its early stages. There's not everything that falls into such a vague category. In other words, there are phenomena like the early stages of vision where we have a rather mature understanding. And then there are phenomena like the later stages of vision, like object recognition, where we have a very poor understanding. It's, there's a lot of variation 
in the brain in terms of some things where we re- have rather complete explanations, things where we have partial explanations, and things where we have no explanation at all. There's a chapter in there which is, uh, I think, somewhat incendiary for this type of book. It's called The Brain is Overrated. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's one of my very favorite chapters. It's by a scientist named Asif Ghazanfar from Princeton. And his point, he, he's being, you know, a little bit, he, he's a little bit provoking in that. But his point, which is a very good one, is that the brain and the body interact And that interaction is crucial for how we experience the world. It's not as if you can capture your experience just by having a a brain floating in a dish. So, for example, it turns out that our experience of sound is very determined by our particular ear shape. So the pinna, the external part of the ear, uh, as you know, in different people can have different shapes. It can stick out more. It can be smaller, bigger, have this fold or that fold, and all of those details condition the sound that is concentrated by the pinna into the ear canal where it's ultimately sensed. And so, for example, if I were to come up to you and put on some rubber Spock ears, suddenly your experience of the auditory world would be very different, even though your brain is entirely the same. But then your brain would adapt to those Spock ears, and the way your brain processed sound information would change as a result. So what Asif is really saying is that the brain and the body are continually in dialogue, and it is this dialogue that determines how we experience the world. It's a very, I think, important point when you want to think about life extension, right? And so there are, there are people like Ray Kurzweil who have posited, well, We'll be able to map uh, the strength of all the connections between your brain, download that into software, and then you can live on in software, or we can upload you from silico into a new body, much as one might see in the, in the television show Altered Carbon. And I don't know if you've seen Altered Carbon, but, but, but they make a good point there, and that is when you're loaded into a new body, you feel sleeve-sick, that is to say, there's a mismatch between what your brain is anticipating information receiving from the senses and and, and, and exerting control through the muscles of that new body and what it has grown up to expect. So this issue that the brain and the body are in dialogue has important implications from the idea of ultimately transferring consciousness into new bodies or into in silico. If you don't have a body, how do you interact with or understand the world. That's Asif's point. Well, it is a fascinating collection of, of articles, and unfortunately there's not time to go through them all. Maybe to close, though, is there any area after compiling all this where, where you feel like could expand more, or is there room for a second Think Tank book? Oh, my gosh. You know, when, when I did uh, these invitations, I tried to, to really cover a broad range of things, but, you know, sometimes someone couldn't make it or something come up in their personal life and an essay I was hoping to get didn't show up. So, for example, we don't have any essays on sleep and waking 
it turns out that there are cells in the brain called glial cells that are enormously important, that were originally thought just to be supportive cells of the brain, but we now know are, are functional. We don't have uh, an essay about glial cells. So there are certainly areas, it's, it's not as if you can use think tank in the place of a textbook because it is comprehensive. There are things that are missing, and maybe those things could be the seed of a, of a think tank too, at some point. But I think uh, we do a good job of, of hitting many of the things that people care about most, from learning and memory to, to love and sex and empathy and social cognition, recovery from injury, and the way our senses are pointed both outward of the external world and inward to our own bodies. These are all things that the book covers and I think does uh, very well. All right. We were just speaking with uh, Dr. David Linden. He's the editor of the new book, Think Tank, 40 Neuroscientists Explore the Biological Roots of Human Experience. And uh, Professor Linden, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me on. It was lots of fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.